This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have Richard Guerin, former player with the New York Knicks and Atlanta Hawks and St. Louis Hawks at that time. Then they moved to Atlanta and also with the coach with the Atlanta Hawks for around eight seasons. How you doing, Mr. Guerin? I'm doing fine. Uh, nice to chat with you guys today. I see you went to Iona for college. You never think of Iona as a basketball school. How did you end up there? Well, uh, to be quite honest with you, I had only uh, played one year of high school basketball. And uh, when I got out of uh, high school, uh, I actually enrolled in freshman week at Manhattan College because I thought I wanted to major in physical education. I had a scholarship to Iona. And uh, after going to freshman week, I decided that was the wrong place for me. And I transferred back up to Iona. And uh was very happy with four years of playing there. What was the program at Iona back in those days? Well, you know, you know they, they played a lot of the local teams. Uh, they played some national teams like Dayton and uh, Baldwin-Wallace and, of course, Siena today. And and it was uh, I was a, primarily a day-hop school, so I went back and forth every day, you know, to school. And then when you went to the Knicks, that would be like a big change for you, right? Not really. Uh, I I was well prepared. I had gone into the Marine Corps for two years between my college uh, graduation and my first year with the Knicks. And uh, we played about 50, 55 games at Quantico. And we played at that particular time, Every mainly every college player had to go in and serve at least six months uh, or to two years uh, of military service. So I actually played against a lot of great players like Cliff Hagan from Kentucky and the O'Brien Twins and Dick Rote, who played professionally. And uh, we uh, I played with a fellow from Holy Cross called Ronnie Perry, who was their co-captain when they won the NIT. So I improved my, my game and was exposed to playing against a lot better competition than I did in college. Was there any anticipation that you would be drafted by the NBA? I had been drafted by the NBA before I went into the Marine Corps. I, dra- I was drafted second round by the New York Knicks. When you went to the Knicks, you went there as a point guard. Who were you replacing as point guard? You're using an expression that uh, I don't, I didn't value at that particular time, and nobody else. There were no such things as point guards or off guards. You were a god. Period. You could play the point, or you could play what they now call the off-guard. You had to be diversified enough to be able to run a team, to be able to play good defense, to ball handle, to play defense. That was considered a guard, not not a point guard or a shooting guard. And, and you could handle both of those roles fairly well, it would seem. That's the way the game point. was played back in those days. If you were a right. forward, you, could, you had a rebound, you had to do all the, the things that a small forward today called or a big forward. A lot of times we had fellas on my team like Bill Bridges and Paul Silas, both big, powerful guys that played at the same time. Or I had Joe Caldwell and Lou Hudson play against certain teams at the same time as forwards. Even in that era of basketball, you had to be able to do the multiple things that some of the players don't have to do today. When did the game become so specialized? I think it started with, with to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know the exact years, but I think it started a lot of with college coaches recruiting. You know, a lot of the college coaches today and, and a number of years ago have basketball camps where they bring young uh, athletes in to 
and they basically stereotype young players as a point guard, shooting guard, and in my opinion, it, it, pro, it stops the young people from diversifying their skills. A lot of players today, you say, he's a great ball handler, but he can't shoot. Or the other guy can shoot, but he can't handle the ball under pressure. Those, to me, are disadvantages that some of the young players have to deal with today. Now, what was it like being traded from the Knicks to the St. Louis Hawks? I grew up in St. Louis, so I know that St. Louis is not New York City. You know what? Uh, I, I, it, was, it was difficult, but I basically requested a trade. Uh, unfortunately, my wife was pregnant that particular time with our, with our youngest daughter, I got traded in October. She was born in December. I just was not ready at that stage of my career to become a uh, uh, a sub off the bench for the Knicks. I drafted Art Heyman number one that year, a player out of Duke. And I had talked to Eddie Donovan, who was then the coach of the Knicks. And I said, Eddie, look, I'm not I'm not prepared to give up playing time or to. Uh, monitor a young guard coming into the league. I still feel I have many good years of basketball left. So if, in fact, that's your intention, then I think you better look around to trade me. He didn't. He told me that he didn't really have any ideas about trading me at that time, but if it, it came up, he would let me know. Well, we played two games into the season, and he called me into his uh, hotel room after the game and said that he had made a trade with St. Louis. So it was a shocker at the time. It was tough for my wife. As I said, she had three other kids that she had to take care of and was pregnant with my fourth. So it wasn't the easiest situation, but it was a good franchise for me to go to. You had some great teammates who were future Hall of Famers on those teams. You had Bob Pettit, Lou Hudson, you mentioned, Lonnie Wilkins, Cliff Hagan, and you. I mean, five Hall of Famers. How did you guys all work together? Well, uh, it, 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 we, we, we didn't have a problem. As I said to you earlier, Fellas knew how to play basketball. I'm not saying guys don't know how to play basketball today. They're great athletes. They're skilled athletes. They're fantastic players. But they have different agendas. Uh, like you've read about Lynn coming to the Knicks a few weeks ago and how it's helped their backcourt back difficulties. Well, I mean, they, they got two or three kids playing backcourt who, in, in the coach's mind, doesn't know how to play guard. I mean, at this level, it's it's embarrassing and to make comments like that. You, the fellas you talked about, they were complete basketball players. There was no major adjustments. I had a major adjustment when I first went to the Hawks because Harry Gallatin, who was a coach at the time, and basically he had a lot of plays. Most of his plays were for the front court, for the Hagans, the Pettis, and Zelmo Beatty, and players like that. And... Uh, it, it took a while for me to, if you want to use the term, become a little more selfish and, and include my own skills into the offense because I said to Harry, I said, Harry, you traded for me. Uh, you, you, if you traded for me, you certainly wanted some offensive force out of my situation rather than doing the same things as the kids you dropped or put on the bench. So I was almost frustrated to the point where I almost went home. And but Mr. Kerner, the owner, and Bob Pettit talked to me and, and and said things will change. And eventually they changed, and I became more more important to the team. You mentioned Ben Kerner, the owner. 
how did she become player coach? Was did Ben just want to save himself a salary, or or was that part of some plan? No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story, and I'll tell you a huge story that that that's attached to it. My, I had played one year with them, and uh, we went through the next year training camp and so on and so on. And then the season started, and I guess the team wasn't playing as as good as Ben anticipated the team playing. And I had gotten hurt. I pulled a muscle in my calf, and I was out for a few weeks. And uh, when I was out, uh, Mr. Kerner summoned me to his office, and I had no idea what it was about. And he said, uh, I'm going to make a coaching change, and I want you to take over the team. And I said, I'm a player. I'm not, you know, there was no such thing as player coaches back then. I said, I'm a player. I still have, you know, a number of good years left to play. Well, I, I talked to Bob Pettit, and we talk, I talked to some people, and they feel you can do the job. So I said to him, I said, well, I'll, I'll try it. You know, I was still on the, the inactive list, but I said, when I come back, I'll try it. And if it, I feel I can do it, I'll do it. If I don't feel I can do it, then I won't we'll do it. You'll have to get somebody else. So... I decided to give it a try. Then I said to him, I said, you know, I'm going to have to get an assistant to help me here. He said, oh, there's no room in the budget for an assistant. You just have to find somebody to help you on the bench with various things that you have to keep. So I did it, and it was, it was fine. It was, it was an advantage playing God, but it was a little disadvantage playing God for the defensive part of it because everything basically happened behind you. So I had a couple of uh, senior people on the bench, Mike Farmer, Gene Tomolin, that I had gave them the responsibility to watch some of the things that were happening. And I did it for like five out of the eight years that I coached. When you were coaching, did you have trouble separating yourself from the players because you were a player for so many years? Did the players kind of think of you as a player and not as a coach or think of you as a coach and not as a player? No, no, I, they they knew I was a player, and I, they knew I was a coach, uh, a lot, and, and they knew I, if I, if, as I said to them, there was a number of times that I called the practice when they, when they, we just came back from a road trip because I wasn't happy the way things happened, and I, I punished myself as well as them, if you want to use the word punish. Uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever I did to them, I, I did the same thing for myself, so. There was a mutual respect between wearing the two hats, and they understood that I did the best and, and fairest things I could possibly do as a coach. And if if I, but I never kept them in the dark. I explained why I did certain things or made certain moves, and most of the time they understood. Now, during your playing days, did you have a favorite backcourt mate? Well, obviously Lenny Wilkins. Lenny was a great player, and uh, we worked very well together. And, uh, you know, then the various other players who came along. Uh, at, at times, I had Lou Hudson or Joe Corwell, depending on what a matchups were, playing guard with me or playing guard with Lenny. So uh, I would say that probably Lenny was, was, the, was the, the best type of guy that, that I had playing with me. I'll tell you what, that 1970 Western Division Finals, I read about that fourth game. You're 37 years old, getting 31 points, five rebounds, and three assists. Was that one of your best games as a pro, or was it the 50-point game? 
Well, I, you know what? I was forced into that situation because we had two of the gods, uh, like uh, Donnie Ole, and uh, who who either broke his hand or had mono and Walt Hazard. I think one, either or both of them were out. So I was forced to play myself that much. We had a rookie, Butch Beard, and another fellow that I'm not sure exactly who the other guard was at this time, probably Lou Hudson, Joe Caldwell. And uh, I just happened to have a game that I played. But, uh, you know, at that stage, not having played that much or not having practiced that much, I, I basically was in, I suited myself up as the 12th man figuring at that particular time in case we had an injury or in case something happened, I would probably be able to do a better job than somebody that sat on the end of the bench all year long. So it, it was one of those things that just happened. But, uh, you know, at that stage of my life, I was just shy of 37 years of age. And uh, it's at that, in those particular days, it wasn't like the young 37-year-olds that can play today. I mean, when the season was over, I had to go get a job and stuff to support my family. So... It wasn't like you train all year long and your body is in that great a shape as you get older. Because you were retired for two years when you suited up. No, no, no. I had, I, I had, I basically retired after 11 years of playing, and and we won the Western Division in St. Louis before we moved to Atlanta. After we moved to Atlanta, I I, I realized and found out I would be best suited to reactivate myself and be like the 11th to 12th man in case we needed that and not have somebody just sit on the bench and not get that much playing time. I remember Zelmo Beatty as a, when I was a kid, and, and I thought he he could sack up with just about anybody in the NBA. Was that a warped view from a young kid's perspective, or was he that good? Well, he... he, he he certainly was at a disadvantage when you played against Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Walt Bellamy, the seven-footers at that time that played inside and and were very strong. You know, Zelma was about 6'9", legit. And he, he didn't have an inside game. Uh, he basically was a 15-foot jump shooter. He used to play inside a lot and set a lot of picks or take advantage of mismatches, but he was not a low-post center. He was more a high post center, and when we played teams like like that, like uh, as I said, Chamberlain or uh, Thurman from San Francisco or Bellamy or Bill Russell, it was to our advantage that he was that type of player, so that he could take them out from, you know, onto the basket. Why did you decide not to coach after you got done with the Atlanta Hawks after they moved from St. Louis to Atlanta? I just had enough of it. Uh, the, in my opinion, the, the, the game was starting to change. We had, we had drafted Pete Maravich, and Pete was one of the first high-priced players that came into the league. And uh, I just noticed the difference uh, of, of the way things were starting to go. I didn't care for the new ownership that was happening in St. Louis, I mean in Atlanta. And, uh, I, you know, I had traveled enough and spent enough of time in the business. As I said, I've had, had four, fa- uh, four children that were going to, uh, were growing up and in, into school and into college. And Wall Street always in, enticed me. And I had some friends that worked in Wall Street. So I went up and visited and interviewed with some of the CEOs of the Wall Street firms. And there was, it, 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 it interests me very much, so I said, you know what, this is where I'm going to, be, this is where I'm going to go. 
not were you comfortable with having a background to go to Wall Street at that time? Were you oh yeah, uh, there's no question about it. I mean, Wall Street. I wasn't what they call a sales trader. I I I talked to institutional clients, not individuals. Like I'm, I'm talking about big banks or mutual funds or insurance companies. And what I did is is to 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 buy and sell stocks from them, uh, representing my firm. And uh, I had enough of confidence in myself. I was mature enough that I could I could uh, I could talk to these people and explain the posture of my firm. And that was very exciting. I enjoyed it very, very much. Was there more stress coaching or being manager director of Baron Stearns? You know what? Obviously, coaching. Playing was the most exciting thing of my life in regard to uh, a business. Uh, coaching was the second. And when I was general manager for a few years, that was, a, that was interesting. But again, as I said, things started to change. Everybody started to get agents. Everybody started to talk about the, 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 how much their people were and worked, and, and I was had to tell them they're not worth, and it just didn't get interesting enough anymore for me. But the challenge of going to Wall Street without any financial background was a cha- another challenge that I looked forward to and accepted and did very well at it. Now, for people who never had a chance to see Bob Pettit play, fit in today's NBA game fairly easily, do you think? There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, Bob Pettit had a, a, a one of the hardest working people I've ever seen and smartest people I've ever seen play basketball. Bob didn't have the greatest natural talents. In other words, as a six-nine forward, he couldn't jump more than a, you know maybe a couple of feet off the floor. But he was a very intelligent rebounder. He knew his teammates. He knew when they had the ball and they were about to shoot. He would try to make his move to the basket to get in good position to rebound. He'd box his man out very good. He was a great 15-foot jump shooter. He was a very, he was a what you call a workaholic and got every ounce of talent and blood out of his body. And I remember a season where he broke his right wrist and ended up shooting left-handed for a while. Yeah, and and he, you know, he he they won the championship that year against the Celtics. You know what? I miss those days. I mean, I was, I'm was i only 40, but hearing the stories, I think I would enjoy basketball more then than I do now. Well, you know what? I I, I enjoy the game, but I, I I don't enjoy watching it on with every team that's on. You know, there's certain games or teams I – you know, I have direct TV. I can pick up any game I want. But I only watch certain teams play, teams that I enjoy watching the way they play. And I don't want to get into saying who and what because I don't want to create, you know, enemies or something like that because the coaches have responsibilities to do what they do. And I certainly don't want to sit here in a chair in Florida and tell you what games or what teams I like better than others. But there's some teams that play the game the way the game should be played. And then there's other teams that play the game that uh, I don't think they maximize the value out of their players or their players are not disciplined enough to play, you know, in a system where you have to do that to win or compete. I like watching European players play in the NBA more than the players that basically grew up here because it seems like they're more team-oriented in the journey. Well, they are because they get more background. The kids, A lot of the kids today come out of the college after their first or second year. And as I said, the, 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 a lot of the kids that come out of colleges are a me-first type of kids. 
their their primary concern is how many points I scored or how many rebounds I got and not not what we did. It's a little bit more of a selfish image because of the amount of money that's out there available to these young people and a lot of the people this is this is this is for the rest of their life that can take care of their families and stuff like that. So I don't totally blame them uh, because this is something they have a chance. You know, they don't have that many chances to, to make the rest of their life secure. But the players that come out of Europe, they play in a team-oriented system. There's not that big money type of thing years ago. It's becoming a little bit more rewarding because we have some of our American players that go over to the Orient or, or Europe or South America that play on professional teams. But certainly it doesn't compare to to the NBA in regard to talent, but the, you'll see more and more Europeans making a team now because they they can do everything. They, they can pass the ball, they can shoot the ball, they can play defense. They're well-rounded. Thank you for your time. But I always ask a stockbroker, former stockbroker, when I talk to them, any stock tips? <laughs> you can never blame that one on me. You'll have to make that choice yourself. What a great interview with Richie Guerin. Excellent player, excellent coach, excellent interview. He could do it all. He forgot he was excellent making money in Wall Street. Yeah. He occupied Wall Street for a while. Well, he, he, he occupied a spot in a in a, in an office somewhere on Wall Street, I'm sure. A very oh. nice one, I would think. I want to thank our guests, Richie Guerin, Stacey Boyer, and Lefty Drizel. Another great show, our sound guy extraordinaire Dave Olson. We're taking next week off, and in two weeks we're going to have the first black player in NBA history, Earl Lloyd, and he'll give you 40 minutes of pure pleasure, I'm sure. Definitely. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening.